We are going to have some fun today. You can see her there if you're watching on the YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, one of our favorite guests, Sarah Stook, is back. She does history. She talks things like, what would you like to make movies out of from history that don't get touched? She also does things like fashion and politics. But we're going to talk history today because we're going to have some fun with it. Sarah, how are you, ma'am? I'm good. Thank you for having me on again. It's always very fun to do. Yeah, you always do these lists. We've had you on before. We've done first ladies. We've done presidents. We've done vice presidents. We've done assassinations. This one you wrote in the Mallard. We're going to link to it. You got 10 things that you think would make really good movies out of history. So I thought it'd be fun. I made me a 10-piece list. You got a 10-piece list. We're going to go through it. Before we do that, though, give me a little criteria here because we've gotten lots of movies one of my complaints about movies is they are all kind of the same. We're doing a lot of remixes. We're doing a lot of sequels. I'd like the Marvel movies okay, but they are kind of the same movie over and over again. Doesn't seem to be a lot of creativity. And one of my things is, because I'm a big history guy, I'm like, man, there's so much stuff from history that's really fascinating that you couldn't make up if you want to. Why don't they just go to this stuff? I was, yeah, because, you know, as much as I love learning about World War Two and the Tudors, there's only so many times you can rehash the story of Henry VIII and his wives. Or, I mean, there's a lot in World War II, but it tends to be the European and Pacific theatre, which is, you know, there's so much more to discuss. You know, I've just been watching um, The Empress on Netflix, which is about Empress Sissy of Austria. And I thought, you know, that's a really fascinating person. So it's nice to, you know, broad out like new historical things, not just, you know, I mean, British history, it's a running joke. We only learn about the Tudor in World War Two. Yeah. And it's interesting, brother. By the way, I've been watching it too. I'm not all the way through, but that's a really good show. It's German. Yeah. Either. Yeah. It's German. Uh, I prefer the subtitles. There's people in my household that wants to watch the doves, which drives me crazy, but whatever you want to do, it's really, really good. Really excellent show. Look it up. I believe it's on Netflix. Um, but that's a good that's one thing I think that's been nice about some of the streaming services and dumping gobs of money at this. I see more historical dramas that are spreading out. So it's like you mentioned the Tudors. Uh, we had two Borgia series at the exact same time running counter each other. You still can do period stuff like that. There's a lot of history out there. I do think it's getting a little better in some of these services. They're at least expanding out, you know, like the Australia, Hunger, Habsburg dynasty, things like I mean, you can mine that stuff for years if you really wanted to. Your history is so vast. You can go back all the way to the caveman. You can go from Africa to Asia and back. And, you know, it's obviously, you know, if as the media is very Anglo-centric, there will be Anglo-centric. But, you know, there's that woman king with um, Viola Davis that's just come out, which is about Africa. So, you know, it's sort of expanding a bit, which I think is really nice. Yeah. And I started putting my list together. I realized really quick that I was getting really... World War II and current heavy, and I was getting really American heavy. So actually, I took a shot at making sure I got some stuff from antiquity, getting some stuff worldwide as well. You did that on your list. So let's get to it. You got 10. I got 10. You start. What's your first one you want to hit us with? Something and the title of the piece, 10 historic events that should be in cinema because you're proper British and stuff. We just call it the movies over here among, you know, the chattering class. Give me your first one. What should they make a movie out of? Well, 
as we discussed before the show, um, none of us can pronounce Chinese words particularly well, so I'm just going to skirt my way around the words. Uh, the Taiping Rebellion, which was a rebellion of several years, which saw about a minimum of 25 million people killed, all because a dude was convinced that he was Jesus. And, I mean, 25 million is in one... It's like one country in one sort of... Not even a civil war, it was the government versus this sort of crackpot totalitarian dictatorship. And it just, you, it was just madness. And not many people have heard of it, but, you know, I mean, the American Civil War killed a few people. And so, did, you know, the English Civil War and things like that. But, you know, Taiping Rebellion, my goodness. It's amazing when you look at this, though. And you wrote about it as like, he wasn't a soldier. His name was Hong. He's not a soldier. He wasn't a politician, wasn't a man of wealth. He converted to Christianity, but somewhere in that process, he decided that he was either the brother of Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ himself, depending on which day you got him on. This went on for 14 years. This wasn't like a two-minute thing when I started reading into it. I'm like, how in the world? His sister got involved, who was his co-commander on the battlefield. Very this feminist. Yeah, I mean, very progressive of him for a guy that thought he was Jesus. Um this has got some amazing stuff in it that you would think would make a really excellent movie. Plus, China's a big movie market. You know, everybody wants to get, you know, billion people. I I have no idea why I haven't seen this in media yet, because this is fascinating stuff. There is a film that was released not long ago about it, but I think it would also maybe work as a mini series because, you know, there's so much... I mean, you can't really pack 14 years into a film in Gone with the Winds did, but it's also over three hours long. So a nice big budget miniseries, sort of like Game of Thrones-esque, kind of. I wonder if the sister would be in there like, please, General Wang, do not burn Taipang or something really corny like Gone with the Wind went with. I don't know. Uh, I love this one, though. And by the way, a little disclaimer. Some of this stuff has been covered in overseas media and movies, but if we don't know about it, we don't know about it. So we are going to have a little bit of a Western bias here, especially one of mine that I picked because I know Bollywood has done it, but it hasn't been in the Western conscious as much. When you look at something like China's history, because there's so many dynasties and there's so much history that goes way before Western history as we understand it, this was actually decently modern. I mean, this guy died in 1864. This would have been the fourth year of the American Civil War. This is, you know, 160-odd years ago. So China, you think about all those, you know, dynasty. This was decently recent as history goes. Exactly. It's not long before the fall of the, of the emperors, So they because they didn't really last much longer than that before the communists took over. So it's sort of, it's kind of towards the end of the power, I guess. Yeah, a really fascinating one. I like that one. Well done there. Okay, I've got one for you that's got a little bit of some current events in it. Sarah Stuck joining us. So we all know that Russia's all over the news because Putin's behaving badly again. This is a fascinating little chunk of Russian history that most people don't realize it, but American troops were on the ground in the, in the Soviet Union, the Russian Civil War. Uh, towards the end of World War One, So while the Doughboys are in France and everybody's paying attention to that, the American army was actually in both sides of Russia. They were on the western side in Vladivostok, and they were also up in, in the eastern part. This is a fascinating piece of history. And when you read some of the stuff from the battles, um, 
I linked to a piece from the Smithsonian talking about Lieutenant Harry Meade's platoon that got overrun by the Bolsheviks. You know, when you grow up our age, you always talk about, well, the great the great thing in our recent history was that the Red Army and the American Army never went to blows in the field. We never had big World War Three. They actually did, though, uh, although it was pre-Soviet Union. They were in a shooting war. There was casualties on both sides. This is an amazing little piece of history that I very rarely hear talked about. But I think that would make for an excellent, fascinating movie, especially with current events going on. Yeah, man, I don't really know too much about Russian history. I've just uh, finished a really interesting book about Operation Barbarossa, which was really eye-opening because, again, it's not something I know too much about. The only sort of Russian history I know is from the TV show The Great, which is marvellous as the programme is, is not accurate at all, but it is really, really good. Let's just preface this is that anything that's a costume drama, you're going to like it right off the bat because you're just a big fashion person. So oh, we probably ought to impress with her wedding dress. Yeah, oh, here we I knew you're going to bring that wedding. It was a spectacular <laughs> wedding dress. We, I want to they need to do a Randy Fioni thing from Say Yes to the Dress just on that dress. I'd watch that. I love Say Yes to the Dress. Anyway, back to the the Americans. This was not a small excursion. They had 13,000 American troops in Russia. Um, they had 5,000 of them in Archangel and another 8,000 some odd in Vladivostok. So in Siberia, so they had both ends of it. And basically what happened was the American troops got stuck right in the middle of a really big mess. The Russian civil war was really, really ugly, really, really brutal. This is another one of Woodrow Wilson's great schemes. One of the worst presidents we ever had and a very evil, despicable man. I don't know how you even talk about something like that, but it's amazing how these big superpowers like America, Russia, China, they have all these military things. We think of World War II. There's dozens of these through history that people don't really think about, but they're scattered through history. And I think each and every one of them would probably make some kind of a decent little miniseries or movie, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, Russia's been a powerhouse for many, 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 many years, even sort of maybe know britain's sort of the original powerhouse but russia's not too far behind so like you said i think russia's a really interesting one i mean i've i mean i'm i'm very into history i obviously don't know absolutely everything but and it's not something i've heard of so i think that would be really something interesting to explore it's made me want to read up on it which i think you know when you watch a series and start reading up on things it's a really great thing yeah, and one of the one things you can read up on this is uh, one they called them the the polar bears because they were up in you know Siberia. Uh, a guy named Lieutenant Harry Costello titled his book "Why Did We Go to Russia," and it's one of the contemporary pieces to read about that because he was there, especially in winter. Especially in winter, Barbarossa taught me. Yeah, but it, it's funny how universal that is. Is because you know how many? Why did we go to Iraq? Why did we go to Afghanistan? Why did we go to Vietnam? There's nothing really new under the sun when it comes to troops going and fighting overseas. They're all, with the exception of maybe World War One, World War Two. There's always that question of why did we go to X, Y, or Z, and that's one of the real contemporary accounts of that that conflict was why did we go to Russia? So folks can read up on that. What's the next one you got on your list of 
historical events that they need to make into movie? I've gone for the story of the White Death. Um, I'm not going to upset our Finnish friends by butchering his real name, so I'm just going to call him the White Death. Um, he was a, a Finnish sniper during the uh, Winter War between Finland and the Soviet Union in the 30s and 40s. Um, he's the most... He's a sniper credited with the most kills in history, over 500 kills in 100 days. The Russians were so scared of him, they sent death squads after him. He killed all of them. He only ended and only ended up because uh, he only ended his reign because he got half his face blown off. They thought he was dead, then they saw his leg twitching. And the day he woke up, Russia declared a ceasefire. And then he went and lived an ordinary long life, died in the his mid nineties, and I, there's been a there's, online. It says there's been a film in development for ages, but what, I don't think anything's really come of it. But that dude was badass, and I just think you know he was a humble guy. He said, "I'm just doing it for my country. If I didn't do it, there'd be no Finland." I just think he's cool. Simple yeah, as. Yeah, and here's another one that you know can tie into contemporary headlines too, because we have Finland, you know, once again having issues with Russia joining NATO now. Um, one of the laws, you know, here we go with some more lost military history, you know, Russia's excursion against Finland, uh, in the early part of war to time period, something that got really kind of brushed aside a lot, but the Finns, I, they haven't forgotten it. It's part of their national identity. And I know the Russians haven't forgotten about it because they're still holding a grudge about it because they got themselves embarrassed. This is just real. This just screams for an action movie. It's a historical piece. Um, you know, you have a guy, you know, defending home and country, he gets wounded. He's just very expert at what he did because, you know, he was an outdoorsman. He wasn't a trained soldier. He was just a really good sharpshooter and adapted that. This is classic story stuff. I mean, they still have um, conscription in Finland and most Finnish people own guns. So, you know, I think if you're at constant risk of being invaded by a very big neighbor, you've got to sort of protect yourself a wee bit. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's a story, although his his kill total and, and his aptitude for being a sniper is is much, much higher. Almost every country has their figure like this. Like, you know, America has their, you know, their Sergeant Yorks and then more modern times. We did have the movie American Sniper about these sort of things. The Russians have one or two from World War II. They got a female one, too, by the way. Yeah. Almost every country has their hero like this. And this is Finland. But I think it'd make a great picture. Oh, it'd be fantastic. Love it. Uh, Sarah Stook continued to join us. Okay. This is one that has been treated a little bit in media, but I don't think it's gotten a full thing. But again, this one would touch on some modern means if they did it. The Johnstown flood. I remember doing this because I did a social studies project on it back in school when I was like, you know, sixth, seventh grade, something like this. Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Here's the background. This is 1889. So very much Gilded Age, right? So Johnstown is the working class, you know, factories, industrial city, kind of typical. But what happened was they made a man-made lake above the city. And it was all the rich folks from, you know, Pittsburgh and other places. They had their summer homes on this lake and it was a leisure lake. But they poorly built the dam and they didn't keep it up, even though the rich folks above town, they didn't keep the dam up. They didn't take care of it. There was a, you know, massive storm. The dam failed. And when the dam failed, they call this a flood. But when you read the contemporary accounts, what happened when this water came down the valley, 
you basically had a massive wall of debris just coming through and crushing everything. It killed at least 2,200 people. It completely wiped out this town. If you look at the pictures, the only thing that stopped the debris field was it finally hit a stone bridge and it just piled everything up. But you have pictures of houses that were carried for miles. You have railroad tracks been up. 2,200 people died. There was almost no warning. Of course, this is 1889. It's in the middle of a storm. There was lots of cover up as to the blame for this because, again, rich people, poor people, you know how they go. Man, that, we love our disaster movies, don't we? This would seem like a great one to do to me. I mean, I am a huge disaster uh, movie fan, personally. I love anything like that. Um, though I I suppose I like disasters more when it's, you know, not real people and it's aliens and big tsunamis and whatever. But it's kind of like Chernobyl. I mean, that was such a big hit, that program. And it was all about, you know, oh, my gosh, it was all covered up. It was only because Swedish noticed there was something different in the air. So, again, it was sort of be sort of a hundred years before that comparison. And it was, you know, it's about rich, powerful people covering up what they've done to poor people. And, you know, the effects of Chernobyl are still very evident today. So I think that'd be a really great mirror, especially since in the Gilded Age when you saw mass amounts of wealth in America. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting, too. If you've never heard of the Johnstown flood, you have seen some of these pictures because these pictures are indelible images. The real famous one is what they call the John Schultz house. That's the house that's laying on its side on a pile of debris with a giant tree sticking out of it at a parallel angle. The really funny thing about that is there were six people in that house and all six of them actually survived. And when you see the picture of the house and how far it went, it's like, how did that happen? Um, it's a it's it's brutal. Um, part of this story too was the debris field that got piled up against the stone bridge caught on fire after the flood. So then you got a fire after it. This was just devastation for this city and for these folks. But you know, you imagine we have mass shootings with 20 people and and we think it's a big deal. This was 2,200 people died. That's a shocking number by, by any standard. And I, I think this would make a fantastic film. Yeah, it's like when you look at maybe 9-11, that was 3,000 people in one in sort of the space of maybe an hour or so. That's a remarkable number. because And it does, It sounds like a lot, but also it's harder, it makes it harder to humanise the victims to say, oh, 3,000 people. You know, that's so many, but you don't really think of them as people. It's more of a, a statistic. Yeah. And there's some famous names involved in this. Uh, Clara Barton, of course, who famously founded the Red Cross. She was involved in this. Uh, she was one of the first people to come in. Andrew Carnegie uh, was tangently, although he wasn't a named member of this club, he was tangently associated with it. So he actually ended up paying for and rebuilding the city library. Um, there's other really famous uh, tycoons of the era, like Henry Clay Frick, um, you know, big steel magnet. He was directly, you know, he was one of the co-founders of the club that built the lake. He donated a bunch of money after the fire. Philander Knox, James Hay Reed. There's a there's a who who's list of that era here, and they got out of the culpability and they spent a lot of money trying to clean up the PR after. But I I just think this would make a fantastic movie. Uh, sad as it is, I think there's also you know pertinent lessons there about you know stewardship and wealth and those sorts of eternal themes. Uh, Sarah Stook joining us. Okay. We're doing historical events to make movies out of. Hey, all right. Okay, get your British on. Let's talk a little anarchy. Something actually, I thought I knew about it, and I started looking into it when I read your list, and I was like, man, I don't know as much about this as I thought, but 
Boy, this is fantastic, including a main character named Matilda, which is always fun. So tell us about the anarchy. Well, Matilda is actually my many times great-grandmother, so a bit of family history. Uh, long story short, um, she was a daughter of Henry I, and um, her brother died in the white ship accident, which basically a bunch of drunk people went on a ship in a storm. It went overboard. He escaped, but then he went back to save his illegitimate half-sister and drowned, leaving Henry with no male heir. He tried to have some more male heirs with his second wife, no bueno. So he named his daughter as his successor. Now, this is early England, so people weren't too cool with having a woman on the throne. Basically, if you've been watching House of Dragon, it's very similar to the Renera situation and probably ends up kind of the same way. So Matilda was married to Geoffrey of Anjou, who was a count from the continent he was not very popular but it was mainly because she was a woman so when henry finally kicks the bucket matilda was like okay come and you know swear me in as queen and the barons said no so they wanted her cousin stephen who was the son of henry's old surviving sister and stephen was like yeah sure i'll come be king over a decade of fighting ensued um eventually there was a piece where i said you know you can be King Stephen if my son is um, your heir, which helped because Stephen's son had died. Henry died, Stephen died a year later, and Matilda's son came on the throne, and there was obviously a lot of battles and hostage situations in between. First of all, this is 1138 to 1153. How do you have people named Matilda and Stephen in this time period? Usually you have some crazy name of people, but you got Matilda and cousin Steve. I mean, this There's could be... The Matilda's a very old name, Matilda of Flanders, her, her wife of one of the Congress. It's a very old name. I mean, Stephen's wife was also called Matilda, so you get a wee bit confused because there's a lot of Matilda, kind of like when there's a lot of Marys in the Victorian era. I'm just sitting here like, you know, Matilda's fighting with Cousin Steve. That could be an East Ender plot line. Like, it, the names just kind of struck me. It's pretty amazing. There, there's some cool history though, because this is Henry. Of course, you already mentioned it when we opened up Henry the Eighth. Everybody, you know, we've beaten that one to death in media. This is Henry the First, and how we got to Henry the Second. Just because they're first and second, boy, there's a whole bunch of mess between the two of them, though, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm obviously as a Brit, loyal to my monarchy, and you know, we've had a bunch of really fascinating people. So, you know, definitely, I would love to see more of early England. Yeah, because it's just so fascinating. It's so, and it's like, I mean, Game of Thrones is based on the War of the Roses. So it's kind of like Game of Thrones without dragons. So the anarchy with dragons would be very cool. Yeah, I think the 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 dragon one for uh, people watching House of Dragons, maybe a little less incest involved, hopefully. Um, I think that's a good comparison, though, because... It people think, you know, especially with the queen just dying, it's a little bit more in our modern day. You have a female British prime minister right now. There was a time when trying to put a woman on the throne really did just start a all out war. I mean, on, in under France, there was Salic law, which meant a woman could not be queen at all, even if there were no surviving male heirs. So there were quite a few skirmishes where no men were left. I mean, look at Henry VIII, he was desperately trying for a son. Yeah, and man, trying to have sons has made for a lot of bloody wars in and of themselves. But yeah, I actually, you don't even have to change the name. You already have the title there. The Anarchy would just be a great, like if you're going to do a mini series or a prestige series, I think the, the Anarchy would be great there. 
Love that one. That's a great one there. Sarah Stubbs joining us. Okay. One of my all-time, it's a tragedy, but it's such a bonker story. Uh, I'm going to go back to, uh, this is going to be in 1919. The Great Molasses Flood, or as it's called, Sweet Sticky Death. This is real. I'm not making this I've up. I've heard of this. It's every, mad. Every time I bring this up, it's, it's one of my favorite little history stories to bring up that people don't realize. Boston, on the waterfront, on Commercial Street, opposite Cops Hill. These are all landmarks anybody has been around Boston knows really well. There was this place called the Purity Distilling Company. It was a subsidiary of the United States Industrial Alcohol. Remember, this is pre-prohibition. This is pre, you know, the, the government running alcohol in America, which is, you know, a tyranny. But we'll talk about that some other time. Okay. It's very highly profitable because they'd been making munitions during World War I. Like everything else, they switched over. So this, they have this massive tank, right? It's 50 feet high. That's 15 meters for those of you over in the UK don't know how to measure things properly. 90 feet in diameter and held 2.5 million gallons of molasses. Now, for folks that don't know what molasses is, this is a natural substance. It's a sugary substance. Think syrup, but a little thicker. It was used a lot to sweeten things. This is, of course, before you had a lot of whole, you know, really well-refined sugar and stuff. Um, They had this massive 2.5 million gallons of molasses. But it turned out the tank was bad. It would often emit rumbling noises. It started leaking. Nobody did anything to fix this because all of a sudden this company wanted to focus on grain alcohol, which you use molasses to cut down the alcohol and you make the flavor better, right? Well, about 12.30 p.m. on January 15, 1919, the tank burst. And like Johnstown, except it was sweet, sticky death running down the streets, you had a deluge and you had debris and you had people dying. This thing came 35 miles an hour down the middle of the center of Boston. Um, this is just such a bonkers story. I don't even know. It killed 21 people. If you look at the pictures, you think a tornado went through. Like it's just it's shocking damage. And it was a molasses tank. So once again, you have, you know, after World War One, but still kind of the tail end of that gilded age. The indu- we don't have the industrial controls we have now. Another disaster movie, but I don't know how in the world you couldn't sell that to a producer. I mean, it's better than dying in the Spanish flu, so. Maybe, kind of. I mean, I don't know. Like, how can you not pitch Sweet Sticky Death? Like, once again, you don't even have to change the title. Just call it Sweet Sticky Death. And (laughs) and then you have the special effects of this massive wall of 35-mile-an-hour molasses, which, by the way, just getting molasses to move that fast is quite a thing. If you've ever actually used molasses to cook, because you pour the jar and you just kind of wait and wait, kind of maybe scrape it with a spoon a little bit, wait a little bit more, and then you got to do the... I this is insane. They the other interesting thing here because of the time. This is a direct quote from the Boston Post. Quote: The horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. Like this is just horrific stuff. And when you look at the pictures, it's just amazing. Um, this of course launched an investigation. How did this happen? Um, warmer weather would have caused the molasses to be less viscous. Viscous, I guess, is how you say that word. So it wouldn't have been as runny. The winter ter- temperatures made the syrup thicker, which made it even worse. And then all the rescuers got stuck in this stuff. So it's kind of funny now. I mean, 21 people died. You don't want to laugh at it too much, but you can see the visuals for a movie there automatically of just people getting stuck. It was like flypaper trying to walk around doing the rescue for this stuff. I could just imagine the Benny Hill theme in the background. I don't know if the Americans know what that is. Google it. Oh, we know it. what it is. We know it is, but you know, 
inside a tragedy, there's always dark comedy like that. You would absolutely have that with this. Oh, I yeah. Think. It needs but, to be like a kind of a bad B movie that's on sci-fi, like a low-budget thing to make it just that bit cornier. Who needs Sharknado when you got, you know, Sweet Sticky Death in the Molasses Wall? It's so bad. I want a movie where a wall of molasses rampages through Boston. It comes like, alive. I want that. Like I demand that. I think we have a right to see this film. That's I think you should me. pitch it. I think we should. <laughs> Sarah Stug joining us. Uh, okay, here's another one that tangentially in the news, Ukraine, Kiv. Um, you've got another one on your list of historical events you'd like to see made into a movie. Talk about Olga and Igor. Well, Olga of Kiev, um, her husband was Igor, who was ruler of the uh, Kievan Rus, if that's how pronounced, I have no idea. Um, he was murdered by their enemies and she was still quite young, widowed mother. Then they said, the Drevlians who killed him said, oh, we would like uh, you to marry our leader. So she's had them buried alive in response to that. And she invited 5,000 to come to the funeral. She got them all absolutely wasted and had her army kill them. So the fight was still going on. So she said, okay, I'd like to do a piece. Um, if you could each contribute a bird or two from your house. So they tied sulfur to the birds. Uh, birds returned to roost and killed everybody in the city. And then there were the ones who escaped were either killed or set as slaves. And I just think that's badass feminist. <laughs> Now you want to talk you want to talk about some Game of Thrones stuff. You know, they talk about yeah. the red wedding. She really did it. Like exactly. she did this. The red funeral. Oh my goodness. She invited 5,000 of them to come to the funeral, got them all drunk and then had them all killed. When they tried to force her into a marriage, she had them buried alive. This woman is just cutting a bloody swath through the middle of Russ at the time. And she's a, a saint in the Orthodox Church. So well, you don't have to be nice to do anything, to be a, come a saint. It's hard to kill a crap load of people and spread Christianity around. Well, hey, Kirill's out here giving plenary indulgences for fighting in Ukraine. So that's not shocking in the bit. Um, here's another one, though. This is 945 to 946. So this is pretty early history. I, this is one I hadn't heard a whole lot about. Um, and the other thing about it is she turned out she was actually a pretty loyal wife. Yeah, I mean, it's fair game to her. Everyone assumes that back in the olden days when women had no choice here to marry, they were miserable. Plenty of happy marriages, and obviously she didn't like the fact that her husband was killed. I'm sure, you know, many people listening, watching of spouses would be very upset if their spouse was brutally murdered. If they're going to set fire to an entire city, it's kind of a different league yeah that <laughs> she she was firebombing before it got into fashion to do firebombing it's pretty amazing pretty creative but pretty brutal and terrible um so here's the big question with olga here who you you do a lot of movies you do a lot of fashion you're you're our go-to when we start talking about female movie leads and things like this who you got playing olga I think you'd need somebody Eastern European. You gotta, you gotta. I'm very, I'm one of those people that's very, you know, I like it when it's very accurate, as in what they look like. So you'd need someone Eastern European. Not entirely sure who, but I'm feeling like a good Eastern European lead would be quite a good one to go for. She's gotten a little bit older now. She's in her mid forties. How about Mila Jovovich? Because she's done the action movie stuff. She did all the Resident Evils. I think she could pull that off. She, she can, can certainly age her down a bit. 
if you yeah. really need it. Oh, she still looks fantastic, by the way. She looks like she's 25. Exactly. But, but she can do that ruthless, cold-blooded killer bit really well because we yep. got plenty of proof of it. I'm good with that. But I'm sure there's some, you know, Ukrainian actress or something that could do that as well. But I I love this one. This is a great pick by you um, because, again, to do the Game of Thrones comparison, people watched Game of Thrones and was shocked by that. This is real life. It's 10 times worse, and it's all real. Yeah, like I said, Game of Thrones is based on real events. I mean, it didn't have dragons, but it's still pretty ruthless. I mean, history is a ruthless thing. There's been some awful, awful people. Vlad the Impaler, for example. Speaking of ruthless people, Sarah Stubb joining us. Uh, I took one that is one of the worst things in history, but I think it would be a a good movie as a teaching tool, something like a Schindler's list or something like, you know, other historical dramas of really bad, awful stuff, but you need to make movies of bad, awful stuff because sometimes that teaches you more than the history books do. Right. Um, the rape of Nan King for folks that don't know the backstory, um, before they got involved in the war with us and the British, uh, Imperial Japan invaded, uh, China. Of course, they've had long running wars for as long as either one of them has existed. They occupied the city of Nanking. Um, the Chinese resistance, Chiang Kai-shek, which later went on to find Taiwan, the resistance was really, really successful. This Japanese general, Matsui uh, Iwani, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, but we executed him for war crimes. So I really don't care if I pronounce your name right. Enjoy hell. Um, he takes it personally offensive. So instead of ordering, let's crush the resistance, he literally ordered destroy the city. He said, make it rubble, kill everything. They think, and again, there's not real good estimates on this. They think they killed an estimated 150,000 male war prisoners. That's just the records they got. They think there's at least another 50,000 of just male civilians killed. What The reason they call it the Rape of Nanking is not just the destruction. They had systematic assault of women. This is where you get the comfort women. They had a system to rape, murder, and abuse women. That went on for this went on for years. Like this was not like a two minute thing. It's a brutal, ugly, horrible piece of history. Um, Matsui was found guilty of war crimes uh, and was executed after the war as well. He should have been. This is we just talked about how dark history can be. You know, again, like a Schindler's List, like a you know some of the other historical things. I think this is one of those movies you need to make because it needs to be told this part of history. Well, there was a woman who wrote uh, an account of it, I mean, a historian, she wasn't actually there, and she ended up killing herself after she wrote it because she was that depressed. And obviously, you know, we want to be sensitive to viewers, so we won't go into too much detail about how utterly brutal it was. But, you know, it's just... I don't know how you could make it anything but brutal because it was that brutal. Yeah, it was senselessly brutal, too. It It was just straight up, genocidal destruction you know the guy got mad and he just ordered destroy the city and everything in it and that's happened in history a couple times too many times but this happened in an era where we've got film of it and we've got video of it and we got records of it and because we had the very rare exception in history we had you know not equitable but we did get justice we have a trial of it and it's recorded for all human history so i think this is one of those that Somebody ought to make for the good of humanity to have on film for the 
I don't know if you want to call it the public consciousness or whatever, but I think that's one that should be made. All right, Sarah Stuck continuing to join us. We're going through our own individual lists of 10 movies of historical things that don't get a lot of attention that we'd like to see made movies of. All right, here's one of my favorite guys in all of history. He, not that he was a good guy. He had a lot of issues, but it's just a fascinating, fascinating figure in history. Tell us about Hannibal and not just the elephants, because that's all anybody ever wants to talk about. That was going to be my opener. Um, he was the uh, bit, I'm sorry. leader of um, a commander in chief of the uh, army of Carthage in ancient times, and he was basically a huge thorn in Rome's side, managing to outsmart and beat much larger, much more experienced armies to the point where he's seen as one of, if not the best general in history, which is you know very very high compliment. And basically, I just want to see him ride elephants over the Alps because it is cool and cold, but also cool. It, it is cool and cold. Um, he absolutely was the bane of Rome's existence. He just was it, the, the numbers here are staggering. He had battles where he would wipe out 80 percent of the Roman soldiers in battle compared to 10 percent casualties for his guys. Like they couldn't get a glove on this guy like logistically on the battlefield in his movements you know the elephants over the alps was like that's become the famous one but that was just insanely ingenious for the time uh he only finally uh died because he was kind of betrayed and then there's some controversy over how he actually died but boy this has lingered this is a big piece of history but then when it comes to media it hasn't got as much attention rome's I'm gotten plenty of really surprised it's not been made into a big movie or i mean i know his character's appeared in a couple of tv shows but i'm genuinely surprised that it's yeah. not i mean we've had thing you'd think like when they did the Ro when they do prestige series over rome they would at least have him as one of the antagonists or something and i it's haven't even really, really seen that it's very weird because Man, this is all right there for the taking. I think this would make an excellent movie. Totally. I think it would just be a proper good action film. I'm not, I mean, I have to admit, I'm not really that interested in ancient history. I can find it a bit dry, but that is like anything but dry. All right. Who you got playing Hannibal riding the elephant since you've already imagined it so many times? Who, who Who's the stud muffin on the pachyderm? I think if he was still alive and not, it wouldn't be over a hundred. I could kind of see like a Kirk Douglas S. Yeah. That kind of solid face. Yeah. Also, yeah. we don't really know what he looked like because you know he lived very very long time ago. But it would need someone to be quite. I also I almost think someone a bit unassuming, like you not like a big Jacks person like The Rock. Someone you think hmm, he doesn't look like much, but would kick your ass. Yeah, and of course we saw him as the original Spartacus, so it's easy to see him in a, in a kind of sword and sandal type epic like that. And God, he was such a great actor. Recently deceased too, God bless him. goodness all right sarah stuck continuing to join us all right i picked this one kind of because i was going to be talking to you and this is one of your specialties so i'm, I'm going to tee you up a little bit on this 
this is something that gets covered all the time, but it doesn't get covered from this angle. And I think this angle is really important to understand it. When you're talking about the Kennedys, you got to talk about Joseph Kennedy, the dad, because that sets the whole thing up. He was a highly suspect and controversial figure. You can range that from being, you know, utterly wicked to whatever you want to call him. But if you do a series on the Kennedys from Joe's point of view, because what also happened was he had his own political stuff blunted by World War II because he was an isolationist. He he got his plum assignment to be the ambassador to, to England and utterly embarrassed himself and the country. You can talk about all that. And then he focuses on his sons. But right as JFK becomes president, he gets hit with a stroke and he's basically mute for the rest of his life. So all the Kennedy stuff, Kennedy's assassinated, RFK's assassinated. He outlives four of his nine children and he's sitting there mute having to watch all this after literally selling his soul for ambition. Don't tell me you can't make a movie out of that. I mean, he was a, oh, I can't probably say the word I'm thinking because I'm not American uh, broadcast. Um, he was a not a good guy. And yeah, he was a nasty piece of work. Um, he shared mistresses with his children, which is ooh. He also encouraged them to sleep with prostitutes. Ooh. He expected his wife and daughters to be faithful, good Catholic wives. Well, he went around with all sorts. Ooh. He had a child lobotomized and put in a mental institution and basically forgotten. He had to pay Jackie to stay in the marriage because his son was even more of a man whore. I'm not allowed to say that, am I? Um, no, man whore he, works because I don't know how else you, you call that. So, yeah, he man was whore. A man whore. Um, so, yeah, and his wife lived really long. She was over 100. She died in like 2000. So, you know, and like I said, he's out with four of his kids. I mean, I'd be more sympathetic if he wasn't an awful human being. I mean, I think he kind of indirectly caused Joe uh, Joe Jr.'s death and Kathleen's death, A, by pushing his kids to be too perfect. So Joe Jr. went out on a mission that he knew could kill him, and then demanding Kathleen not marry the Protestant man she loved, and she got on a dangerous plane. So, yeah, I'm not not too sympathetic but you know there's a lot of characters in history that aren't particularly sympathetic so yeah i mean that's just that script writes itself i mean the arc of so ambitious you destroy your own because we talk about the kennedy curse well the kennedy curse was really when you dig down into it it wasn't a curse it was decision making it was hubris it was hubris and decision-making and almost all of that, although, you know, look, Jack, Jack and Bobby were responsible for their own decisions when they were grown men, but it all comes out of the fountainhead of Joe Kennedy and his awfulness. And you have so much American and world history and pop culture that pivots around the Kennedys. You've got to start with him. So to do a movie where his ambition just absolutely not only wrecks himself, but, you know, wrecks havoc internationally, frankly, that that's got to be a movie worth making to somebody, I would think. And he really didn't want to go into World War II. He, I mean, he wasn't sim- a Nazi sympathizer as such, but he didn't really mind them as much as others did. He was a bit of an appeaser, and that basically killed his political career, so he shoved all the rest of his ambitions onto his poor sons. 
well, we got to be specific. He's doing that as the ambassador to the United Kingdom while yeah. the United Kingdom's getting bombed. Like, that's not the time to fly your, oh, they're not that bad flat. Like, it was stupidly, like, it, it was just, it wasn't just dumb. It was, like, purposefully, outwardly dumb. Like, there's no way he didn't know he was going to get recalled and basically sacked for that. Yeah, but more money than sense, I would argue. Um, the I know you've we've had you on talking about the Kennedys extensively, but um, you mentioned Joe got killed. Um, J- Joseph Jr. was killed in World War II. That guy JFK is next man up. Yeah. Um, there's no way to explain the Kennedys without Joseph. But from JFK's point of view and Bobby Kennedy's point of view and the other kids' point of view, <laughs> were they driven by or running from their dad, do you think, that caused all this craziness in their life? He was. Co- they were competitive family. You know, when they were playing, even at Thanksgiving when they were playing tag football at the compound, they were still odd to be competitive. They wanted to one-up the other. I mean, look, at it's why Joe Kennedy Jr. went on that flight he knew it was dangerous but he was suicide mission let's call it what it was yeah suicide mission and he knew the electrics were faulty but he was peeved his brother had got awarded and he wanted to sort of one-up him as such so and they've never found his body no they wouldn't for for folks that don't know what they they were basically they had two bombers they were trying to drone them in a primitive way where one would fly on autopilot with explosives in it and they would follow the plane in front of it of course they don't have computers yet So they had it wired electronically to do this. He was supposed to arm it and then bail out of the plane. And when he armed it, it exploded. So there's pretty much nothing of him left and whatever's left was scattered. Um, That's what he signed up for. And it was because JFK had already been this big war hero. And again, they're trying to one up one another. And I don't want to distinguish his duty. He died in the line of duty. So I don't, you know, I don't want to go too far with that. And they did it against their father's wishes. He didn't want them to go into the war. No, he didn't. And became even more of a bitter, t- cantankerous, wicked guy after that because he felt like he got cheated out of his son. Yeah. But yeah, I I just, we've broken the taboo in America of trashing the Kennedys. Like we're allowed to do that now, whereas for a long time you couldn't do it. I think this needs to be made. I think it probably will get made actually at some point because it's just too good of stuff. But Joe Kennedy, that's one of mine. Sarah Stook continuing to join us. We're going down our list of uh, 10 each. So 20 historical movies we want to do. All right, here's one my kids will be thrilled at because they watch Young Victoria so much that I'm I'm ready to delete it off my, you know, Amazon so they'll stop watching that stupid movie. I'm so sick of her and Albert falling in puppy dog. I'm kid. It's really well done. It's a good it's movie. A nice after, the, after the first 50 times, I'm just okay, I get it. There's angst, there's letters. I don't know if Albert's coming back. Just move along. But Queen Victoria's children, you want to talk about importance? This is the who's who of European royalty and European power for the next hundred some odd years out of this group. You can draw direct lines to World War One from this group. You can draw direct lines to the Russian Revolution from this group. You can draw direct lines to what happens in England. Like there is so much history that comes out of Queen Victoria, not just because of her long reign, but because of her issue, as the historians call it. Her kids are all over European power and royalty and politics for the preceding century. I, I mean, I, this is just obvious. Like, of course you'd make a series over this, yeah? I mean, the point back in, you know, royal times to have kids was basically also, you know, 
create connections to select dynasties if you had a daughter you married her off to the king of france spain england so that was when the women were useful to be married off and then you'd get a spanish princess for your son yada yada she had nine kids and they all lived through infancy and to adulthood which back then i mean it was certainly better than it had been a few hundred years ago is very impressive and no queen victoria she'd hated childbirth and she didn't like kids she really liked being with albert but she didn't particularly like John, but she sort of went through it as because there was no viable birth control. Like I said, she liked her time with Albert, but nine kids, their descendants include obviously the English royal, the British royal family, but the Spanish, the Norwegians, the Russians. The, I mean, she just, she was also called the grandmother of Europe for nothing. And her children were fascinating. You know, the women helped found nursing, um, the men were like Governor General of Canada, were princes in their own right. Uh, granddaughters included the Queen of Spain, um, the Tsarina of Russia. And it was the haemophilia that partially ended the um, Romanov dynasty because they were desperate for a son because under Russian law at that point, you couldn't have women take the throne. So when Alexei, their uh, only son, was born with haemophilia, they consulted Rasputin for help. And if it wasn't for haemophilia, I mean, obviously there were other factors. I'm not going to simplify it just to Rasputin, but it helped. And when you look at a picture of, you know, uh, her son and versus her nephew, they look the same. You can't tell which is which. They're identical and it is creepy. Yeah. And the thing about this, too, is, and you mentioned it, it's not just the one, you know, people want to talk about, you know, Harold of Norway, Kaiser Wilhelm, of course, famously of Germany, that ended that line. Tsarina, Carol of Romania, Philippe of Spain. You've got all the ones that didn't become, you know, heads of state themselves, like Alice, like Arthur. They had extremely interesting lives in and of themselves. Yeah, I mean, a few of them had happy marriages, but it was never, you know, what their parents had. Quite a few actually had quite poor marriages. I mean... Victoria, her eldest daughter, her son was Kaiser Wilhelm, who was absolutely awful to his parents. I mean, he was an awful human being in general, but he really didn't like his mother because she had British sympathies. So, yeah, the only fascinating, I mean, nine kids, most of whom married royals. Obviously, the daughters were more expected to marry royals, but after Albert died, she wanted her daughters close, so she let them marry into the British nobility instead. Because at this point, you know, it wasn't like 200, 300 years ago where if you're a princess, you would have married a prince. Like, they would, they were a bit more relaxed about that. Yeah, Sarah still continued to join us. Okay, let's go to Africa and... This one I found fascinating because uh, the Solomonic dynasty, um, this is in Ethiopia. They claim their lineage from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. So there's just some history that goes back a little ways. You know, you're going biblical times now. But this dynasty lasted until 1974. So, you know, they claim the history of it going back, of course, to, you know, before before the common era. But officially. You know, they're talking at least from 1270 onwards that we have really good record. Anybody that gets an 800-year run out of something deserves some kind of movie. But there's some really amazing, fascinating stuff in here um, because, you know, it's an African kingdom. It's in Ethiopian. They they had different periods of domination and subjugation over and over again. They have these they have these branches called cadet branches of the of the royal line, even to this day that they argue over. 
there's a lot of fascinating history in here. Um, I love stuff like this. We talk about some of, we talked about the Chinese dynasties. This, this is undoubtedly a dynasty. It's also the bastion of Ethiopian, Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity, which predates most, even the Catholic church. You know, there, there's all sorts of stuff in here. You have male rulers, female rulers, intrigue, lots of infight. This is an amazing thing that I think, especially a Western audience that wouldn't be really familiar with it, I think this would make a great movie. Exactly. You know, Africa is such a you know, vast, rich continent of over 50 countries where there's so much history. And Ethiopia was the only country that managed not to get colonized, which is pretty impressive considering everybody else did. So, you know, they were tough cookers. I mean, you know, people maybe less my age, but you know, my parents' age or age won't be no, will know the name Haile Selassie, for example. And like you said about the um, Ethiopian church, they believe that there's a relic of the true cross in Ethiopia, and uh, one of the ones in Addis Ababa. So, you know, very relevant culturally in a religious scale as well. Yeah, I also find it funny that one of the things they did when you read in the history of this is they had the female line and the male line. Like, they took this stuff seriously. They did. Um, uh, but I, you know, I'm not even going to try to pronounce some of the names, but some of the characters involved here and their different rules and how they dealt with things. It's fascinating history to me. I think it would, this, you you want to talk a pre- prestige series as opposed to maybe a film. Here you go. This is one you could get, you get 20, 30, 40 episodes out of this easily. Cause again, you've got, even if you don't go back to biblical times, like they're claiming, just on paper, 1270, that's 752 years. That's an impressive run by anybody's standards. Give the folks a movie. They deserve it after all that. Um, Sarah Stuck joining us. All right, let's go way back in time. 1897, Cadaver Synod. Um, <laughs> look, we, we've had some real characters as the Pope, with all due respect to our Catholic friends. These guys might take the cake, even with the Borgias and some of the more famous craziness that goes on in the Vatican. This got really crazy in a hurry. So for folks that aren't familiar, let's talk about Rome in the ninth century for a few minutes. Well, there was, um, back in those days, the Pope didn't last long. Nowadays, it's basically you do it until you die. Back then, it was either you died quickly or you were murdered. Um, so there was Pope Formosus, who was spent nearly five years on the job before dying, which is pretty impressive back then. His immediate successor then died after only two weeks. And then the next successor, Stephen IV, wasn't a huge fan of him. So he decided to dig him back up, dress him in his papal clothes and have him put under trial. They got a deacon act to act like a spokesman. So it's basically like a medieval trial. And halfway through, an earthquake struck. And they were said, this is a sign from God. So this guy, Formosus, was retrospectively stripped of his title and was thrown in the River Tiber. Then the citizens got a bit peeved because, you know, not really good thing to do. Stephen was overthrown, then strangled to death. His successor had Stephen's papacy annulled, but then he was overthrown. And then the Pope after that lasted 20 days, but finally actually managed to get Formus's body. And then the Pope after the, that, John, saw Formus is buried properly. <sighs> Love names. <laughs> okay, where do we even start with this? This is a very Stephen-heavy episode, by the way. We got too many Stevens on this one. So Stephen the Fourth didn't like the previous guy, so he dug his body up, put his papal clothes on him, put him in a chair, and they have this weekend at Bernie's trial with the dead body dressed in the hat and everything sitting there. 
and in the middle of that you have an earthquake i'm not a hollywood screenwriter but if you wrote that as a hollywood script they'd like no that's too ridiculous we can't do that this actually happened exactly and it needs to be like a death of stalin style comedy you need that you need people with no latin roman accents you need people probably yorkshire accents or american accents you need it death of stalin honestly get the whole cast of death of stalin back do like a second film but set in eight nine seven Brilliant. Jason Isaacs can do something with this character. I know he can just exactly. turn him loose on it. Yeah, this needs to be death of Stalin because you then have after this is like, so they get angry at Steven. So they strangle him, throw him in the river. The guy after him has his, has him annulled, but then he's overthrown after a year. The next guy only lasted 20 days, but got the body out of the river, but didn't get it buried. That took another Pope, John the ninth to finally get it buried. Yeah, this this needs to be a big Death of Stalin ensemble cast where it, it's almost like the end of The Departed where just all of a sudden we kill off four characters in 25 seconds or whatever I've it was. I've never seen that. Sorry film. for anybody that hadn't seen that movie, but you know, after 15 years or whatever it's been. This needs to be a dark comedy. I agree. I think the comp here, we were comparing other things to Game of Thrones. I think this needs to be Death of Stalin. Just make it dark comedy, go all out on the bloodshed and the gore and the insanity and just crank it to 11. I love it. Let's do it. All for it. Okay, my next one. Uh, this guy, this guy should be on somebody's money. This guy should be world famous in history because he's known as the luckiest unlucky man in history of time. His name is Tismunu. I'm probably saying his name wrong, but Tismu <laughs> Sutumi Yamaguchi. I know I got the Yamaguchi right. So this poor guy, all right. On August the 6th of 1945, poor Yamaguchi-san was working on an oil tanker for the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. So wartime industry, right? He's just working on the boat trying to make a living, poor guy. So he'd been on the job for three months. But on that sunny summer day, he forgot his personal stamp for his documents, so he couldn't get into work because he didn't have his stamp. Basically, he forgot his ID card. Everybody's done this, right? So instead of boarding the bus or the streetcar, he returned to his rented room to retrieve it. This proved fortuitous because while he was walking back, uh, the Enola Gay dropped the atomic bomb <laughs> on the city. Okay, he was two miles away from ground zero. Uh, he saw the flash. Uh, his naval air raid training kicked in. He dove into an irrigation ditch, covered his eyes, plugged his ears. The blast went over him, so he didn't get killed by the initial blast wave. He survives the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, right? So tens of thousands dead. He lives. He was badly burned, and his eardrums were ruptured, but he lived. He actually remembers seeing the mushroom cloud when he got up. He didn't see the flash and all that, though, because he was smart enough to dug down. You know, the old Indiana Jones, don't look, Marion. He managed to pull this off. So he spent the night in a shelter. But he's burned, he's hurt, he doesn't have anywhere to go. So they start evacuating people out of the city, right? So he gets on a train. So he's being taken with a bunch of other people. So he decides to go home and reunite with his wife and children. 
well, he'll be safe at home in this neighboring city called Nagasaki. And of course, when he gets there on the 9th of August, just three days after the first atomic bomb and a day after making it there, he reports to work for his superiors at the Mitsubishi plant in Nagasaki when he's told that the massive weapon, a single bomb, could wipe out a whole city. They didn't believe him. So he's telling these folks, this is in the morning. He's telling his boss, hey, I was there and this massive weapon wiped out the whole city. And they're like, we don't believe you. So depending on which version of the, belie- the story you believe, right after he tells them there, there's this big flash of light because we dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. The poor guy got, he was in both atomic bombings and somehow lived and survived it. Um, he survived both blasts. His family also survived. Japan s- surrendered six days later. This guy actually became a vocal supporter of nuclear disarmament. Gee, wonder why. But he actually lived quite a while. There was about 165 people that they know of that were bombed twice. There's a word for it in Japanese that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Uh, But he's the only one that's officially acknowledged. But they think there's about 165 of them out of that refugee group that went through both bombings. Actually lived a pretty full life. Uh, Became a teacher. Even went back to working for Mitsubishi, where I'm sure he eternally was like, hey, I told you so. Um, How in God's name is this guy not have a movie and a statue and a story? Because this dude's awesome. I love this guy. I bet he, if his boss survived, he was like, hey, see, I told you so, but. I mean, can you imagine what, like, I've had some, you know, crow on my face moments as a manager. Dude walking in and saying, hey, they have a weapon that wiped out my old workplace. That's why I'm showing up to work here and they don't believe you. And then you get hit with that exact weapon right after that. Ah, that's that's got to be way. Don't tell me you can't make that a beat in a movie. Exactly. It's just, it's almost, it's like what it's all these things. Truth is stranger than fiction. If that was made into a film, you would think this would not happen. Because there are sometimes things. Um, Audie Murphy in his films, he actually had to tone down how badass he was because nobody believed this scrawny kid could be that cool. Yeah, that same kind of thing. Yeah, and Audie, <laughs> Audie played himself in the movie about Audie, which was really crazy when you consider the the demons that guy had to fight all through his life and eventually ended his life in the end. But yeah, I, how in the world our buddy Yamaguchi doesn't have a movie yet is just a crime against humanity. Give the man a movie. He deserves that much. Exactly. Sarah Stuck, we're going down our list of things from history. Okay, most of these are unknown things. This is not only a known thing, this is like maybe you're the thing because you're such a Theodore Roosevelt stan. It's just, frankly, somewhat embarrassing sometimes. You you love this man in an unhealthy way, I think. He's been in movies. He's been in miniseries. I thought Tom Berenger actually did a pretty good job on a not otherwise remarkable TV series, but I thought he played him well. But the backstory of Theodore Roosevelt, I see why you're going here, because for people that don't know, Roosevelt made himself into what we know as Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, he was born rich and all that, but he was a sickly, gangly kid that they didn't really expect much out of. He made himself into what he was, and then he got a little lucky along the way because he was so ambitious. The backstory on Teddy Roosevelt has a lot of really good stuff in it, doesn't it? I mean, the dude was just awesome. Like, he was, as I call it, the only Chad American president. You know, if you just, some of the stuff he did, you know, a guy um, was threatening to assassinate him, so he said, well, go on then. 
try me. The dude smartly didn't. Went on with a ninth minute speech after he was shot because he knew he wasn't brutally hit because he wasn't bleeding for the mouth. Therefore, they had no lung punctuation. He, um, as governor of New York, he just rode around New York at night to make sure the police were doing their job. He caught some boat robbers and stared them back to civilization two days away by keeping himself awake reading Tolstoy, um, the Rough Riders at San Juan Hill. Basically just a Chad, a real Chad. And I feel that we should be celebrating the Chads of this world. And he is one. <laughs> he famously read at least one book a day. That was one of exactly. his we, we goals every day. Um, he knew how to do PR. Um, he, you know, there's stuff about him that, yeah, some of it's probably been exaggerated some, but he was the one exaggerating it on purpose because he wanted to be that, you know, he called it the vigorous life. That was his whole thing. When, when he went out West and remade himself physically, like he physically remade his body and his attitude and his personality from a sickly child to a, you know, full grown, full blooded man for good, bad and indifferent. And, and it did, and it was a problem for him in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. it wasn't all good manliness. Like he, he got himself in trouble with it too, but, you can't separate it. So when crisis came, like, you know, McKinley getting shot and all of a sudden you're president now, you yeah, know, I mean, things like this, he was prepared for crisis and he usually met it. And the Republican party said, Oh, it's fine. We can kick him upstairs. You know, he won't be any bother as vice president. Um, I think it was Mark Hanna that said that damn cowboy will be president. It sounds a bit like uh, the Reagan line in back to the future. And then a few months after his second inauguration, McKinley was killed and they were like, Oh, bother I, my favorite one on your list that you listed those like he got blinded in one eye boxing so he quit and took up judo <laughs> like i said the, i like men who are chads the chad oh. should rise again perhaps not the best parent though because he also had the real famous quote about you know trying to reel in his daughter you want to tell that story real quick though Well, alice was just cool she was, you know, she was the only child with his first wife and he called her Baby Lee because the thought of Alice made him upset. She was a thorn in his side. She would go out unchaperoned with men in cars, the shop, walked around with a snake around her. You know, she was just cool and she lived a long life and she was, you know, advisor to many politicians. She had a cushion that said, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. And he said, I can't, I can either run the country or tend to Alice. I couldn't possibly do both. So I'd argue it was a great parent because she was cool. You know what? There's another one. She's not on our list officially, but Alice needs a movie. Get Alice a movie because she, she, uh, she was also the mistress of one of the most powerful senators during his presidency and became a backdoor, uh, very influential political figure in a lot of ways. So fascinating woman, Alice Roosevelt. So, yeah, get her a movie, too. Uh, Sarah Stuck continuing to join us. OK, I'm going to be a homer here, but this story really does need to be told in a more. They kind of touched on it with the Mate Wan movie, but they they stuck to the Hatfield stuff more. Uh, Blair Mountain. This is the largest labor uprising in American history. You're talking about 10,000 miners take to the woods. They had to send in the U.S. Army to put this thing down. And the miners basically fought the army to a standstill. Like, this is some, some, and, and then they finally negotiated and like, look, this is going to be a bloodbath. Y'all come down, put your arms down. We'll figure this out. But we, because, you know, you had a bunch of, you know, war vets, Spanish-American war vets, a lot of them. And they're like, we don't really want to kill each other. Let's not do this. The Army actually sent in bombers and bombed American soil on its own, which turned into a disaster because they lost half of them because they were really crappy airplanes at the time. 
But Blair Mountain, West Virginia, the coal mine wars, this, they just had the anniversary of it. It's part of a larger narrative of labor in America. But 10,000 coal miners saying, screw you and taking up arms, this is not a small thing. But yeah, this would make an awesome movie. Is that the one where there was like a woman involved? Was it Mother Jones or am I thinking? Mother Jones was involved. She shows up so you can tie that in. Um, Part of what kicked the whole thing off, of course, was the events of Mate Wan, which is it's a really good movie, by the way. David Stratton stars in it. Uh, James Earl Jones is in it. I think it was Chris Cooper's first movie of his long. Yeah, he's a great act. You'll know him when you see him. He's a great actor. He's been in all sorts of stuff. I think it was one of his first movies. Great movie about, you know, the Baldwin Feltz agents and crushing the sin and the local sheriff, Sid Hatfield, who they ended up assassinating right after events of that movie. This is part of that overall story of Blair Mountain, uh, Logan County, West Virginia. But just the fact that you have a labor uprising that they had to send, this is in 1921, um, when they murdered Sid Hatfield on the courthouse steps, they basically ambushed him and another guy and just, you know, shot him to pieces on the courthouse steps. The mountain, the the miners had had enough. They took up arms and they went in the hills and said, you want us to work, come get us. And of course, the the agents didn't have nearly enough the firepower to do that. So they ended up having to call in the U.S. Army to put this thing down because you've got a bunch of armed miners on really high ground and they're not coming down. Um, there's a lot that goes into this. You can talk about the labor aspect. You can talk about the insurrection aspect of it because they were an open rebellion. Let's just call it what it was. Um, but these people, they had been, you know, the company stores, they paid them in company script. The company owned their houses. The company owned them. The company owned their children and their wives. You know, so when the company starts machine gunning the tents that they're living in to get out of the company houses, what else do you expect these guys to do? This would be a fantastic feature film or prestige series. Um, part of my A-level history was actually on the history unions from 1865 to 1992, funnily enough. So I remember learning that. I don't think we ever ta- I don't think we ever learned about that particular event but you know if we look at the uk there are so many like big labor events um and you know you look at um the 1980s with thatcher versus the miners you know obviously not alive for that but you know the, the famous images of the police versus the miners you know with batons there's you know quite a lot of stories about it, like billy elliott um a lot of you know people in the north for years and years, we never very Tory, hated Margaret Thatcher. And, uh, you know, we've got the, the unions in this country, I've got a very storied history. Much as the same in America, you know, the Paco strikes of the 80s and Reagan just called the bluff and said, you're out, end of. And then disasters like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which, you know, was a huge, encouraged huge labour reform after hundreds of girls and women were burnt to a crisp. So whatever side you fall on the union, they've got such a storied history that I agree it needs to be discussed. And, you know, the government shouldn't be doing that to people. End of story. Yeah. And one of the reasons this probably doesn't get talked about that much is because the death toll was reasonably low because the miners, again, most of them were veterans. They did not want to fight the U S army. They wanted to fight the coal company. So once the U S army got involved, you know, cooler head prevailed and like, okay, look, we can't fight the U S army. Right. Even though it was a stalemate, that would have got bloody and that would have had only one conclusion and it would have been a very bloody death toll. So, you know, calmer heads prevailed. They did get some they did get some um, some conditions for that. 
And to this day, they still the the phrase "hang Don Chafin" is still you know widely hummed and sung by miners, and everybody still hates the guy's guts. And the hat, Sid Hadfield's still a folk hero for his part. But it's an amazing little piece of history. Again, I'm being a West Virginia Homer here. Class struggles and labor struggles, whatever you think of them, they're very real. They're throughout history, and more times than not, if you don't deal with them in a fair way pretty quickly, they wind up in violence almost every time. Like you said, it's universal across cultures too. I mean, if you look at Lamers, it's based on you know 1823 France and after General Lamarck's death, and you know that sort of, and it soon ended the French monarchy for good. This time, you know that's such a famous one. Billy Elliot is set during the miners' strikes. It's such an important piece of history, and then you've got like the unions when you had like Jimmy Hoffa that era where it started to get a wee bit corrupt and that's when and there is a massive decline in unions I don't know if the same is true in the UK but I know in the US there's a huge decline in union membership yeah and and there's a lot of reasons for that but part of it is you know my opinion people disagree I think they've gotten too much you know unions are always going to be political but they've become so political that they've lost their their main sign of of taking care and look i i i'm one of those guys i i think you have a right to join a union but i also think you should have a right to not join a union and that's uncom that's incompatible to a lot of folks but that's another lesson for another day sarah stook joining us okay uh let's go to spain spanish civil war you want to talk about a hot mess of trying to untangle who the good guys were in that Power well, there was crap. a man named Juan Garcia who was um, a Spaniard and he was in the Spanish Civil War. He had to fight on both sides, didn't particularly like to moved away. He ha- hated extremism, he hated fascism, he hated communism, so, you know, anti-Soviet Union, anti-fascism you know, in Spain. But he really hated Nazi Germany, as, you know, many people did. So he decided, I'm going to help out when Nazi um, Germany invades Poland. Obviously, he couldn't really do anything in Spain because Spain was neutral and had tactic support for the Germans. So he approached the Americans and the British and they said, bye-bye. So he went to the Germans and said, oh, I'm a Nazi sympathiser, which as, as a Spaniard, he could probably fairly easily do. So he said, OK, you're going to go to London and create a network. But instead of doing that, he headed to Portugal, which I also believe was neutral, but I don't really know much about Portugal at the time. So it made it look like he'd come from London. So he created a network of fake spies. So many of the Germans said, OK, you've done enough, thank you. He was a really talented forger, so he managed to make documents. He also convinced the Germans several agents had died, so they actually paid money to fictional-wise pension money. The British, he'd managed to get the British on side, so he'd send real things, but afterwards. So they said, OK, the Allies are landing here in Normandy, but then he sent the true documents that arrived afterwards. So he's received both an Iron Cross and an MBA. So it's basically like James Bond, but real and with not cool cars. This one is one of those that is so insane. It it really is a James Bond movie. He's playing both sides against the middle. Everybody thinks he's on their side. He secretly just hates everybody from all practical purposes. I can't help it. I like this guy. I know I cheated by saying because I said no more World War Two, but I mean there's there's so many World War Two ones I put in that like because it's usually like the Holocaust. It's you know the european from pearl harbor the pacific theater we don't get stuff i think like about you know like the northern african theater for sure uh i urge everyone to google a man named jack churchill who was just absolutely mad but in like the best way he was like british eccentricism perfect and there's so many 
amazing stories of World War Two, and I think you had to go for one that you know because it is boring hearing this, seeing the same ones, seeing the same battles. As much as we love films like Saving Private Ryan and Midway, it you want something new because it was truly a world war. It's not just in Germany and Japan and America and Britain. No, it was the world war. It, it's so fascinating. World War II is so big. And of course we see things, you know, D-Day. We think of the big battles. There was so many individual things that is lost to history in the resistance movements, in the Holocaust stuff. You know, if you just take something like the Eastern Front, you know, you're talking about tens of millions of people. You know, the entire world war, the entire world was really at war. You know, you had, we were sinking, you know, German ships were getting sunk in Argentine waters. Yeah. Like the, the, it was everywhere. And there's so many individual stories in there. We could do one of these and do a hundred people just out of the World War II era and probably still run out of folks. It's I amazing. Mean, but but we think of those big things and we forget those little individual stories like that. There's a program called uh, called Spy about uh, women. So like, um, like um, Virginia Hall, who, you know, went, Nora Khan, who went, British woman who went to fight a lot of them died. Nancy Wake is a fascinating figure. I encourage everyone to read about. She was an absolute badass. So like I say, you've got the resistance, you've got French resistance, the Polish resistance. You know, in Germany, you've got the White Rose movement. Then you've got, you know, South America got involved. Kind of at the Commonwealth, you know, a lot of Indians gave their lives to the British, and then soon enough they had independence. And like I said, the North American theatre, you don't really hear much about. You know, my great grandfather was involved in that theatre. It's it's kind of a shame you sort of forget about Egypt and Tunisia and that kind of place. Yeah, and the military, if you look at the maps through the war, they just, they just chased each other back and forth across North Africa. It, Libya to Egypt, back to Libya, back to Egypt, back to Libya. Like, they just kept going back and forth. It was just a marvel. Just, it's amazing pieces of history that get lost. Um, there was fighting in the Middle East in World War II. A lot of people don't realize that. It, it, it's amazing how broad that conflict It's got. the collapse of the, also the empire. Independence, however slowly or quickly, was gained for you know, India, Pakistan, but Bangladesh came into being. Um, I mean, you, you know, everyone knows British Empire, that the British Empire is the empire that still never set on. You, I don't think we realize how much power Britain had. Like when you look at all the places that we've either never invaded or never colonized, it's not a very big number. We've still only got 22 until we've got like a perfect set. It, it We really did have a lot of colonial power. And World War One sort of helped end it, but World War Two just broke it. Because I mean, at the end of World War One, we'd lost quite a few monarchies, the Russians, uh, the Germans, and then. Sort of by maybe the seventies, you only the sort of the major ones were maybe you know the British monarchy, Norwegian, and a few others. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Uh, Sarah Stook, our historian friend. Okay. This is not a World War II one. This is a Civil War one. Everybody knows uh, we're all friends now, special relationship, but America and Britain did go to blows twice. We won't point it to the scoreboard or nothing, but we won both of those. There was almost a third one that people don't really think about nowadays because it gets buried in the Civil War stuff. But there was this thing called the Trent Affair. I think this would be a fantastic movie. We can have British version, British versus America one more time. Almost. It really did almost come to shooting war. So what happened with this was, um, of course, the, the Confederates were trying to court Europe, especially England. Uh, to come, if, if not be on their side in the war, at least officially recognize them in trade. They miscalculated badly because turns out they the cotton they could get around, what they really needed was America's wheat, and America was buying all their saltpeter, which they needed to make gunpowder from England. So business-wise, cotton wasn't actually going to be able to override that. But anyway, long story short, the U.S. Navy captured a British ship, a uh, Confederate ship, and it had two... Hold on, let me re-say this because I'm going to say it wrong. So long story short, the U.S. Navy captured a Confederate ship and it had two British guys on it, right? Now, they didn't officially recognize the British, but they did have envoys and they did have communication. So they seized these two guys. Um, Jefferson Davis makes a big stink of it. The British get really upset um, and they take him down to Havana. Uh, the British mail steamer Trent, the American warship U.S. San Jacinto, goes after looking for these guys. Long story short, the British get really upset. They said it's a violation of British neutral rights. Britain sends 11,000 troops to Canada and threatens to invade from the north if we don't clean this up. Now, the Lincoln, of course, is like, no, we're not going to fight a war on two fronts and we're not going to fight with the British. They smooth it over. They give the guys back. The important part out of this is you get the Lyon-Seward Treaty of 1862, which basically bans the Atlantic slave trade once and for all. Of course, the the English had already banned it, disbanded for the Americans. This is before the Emancipation Proclamation. But uh, there's so much intrigue here. You have the Civil War background. You have politics. You have people that are still alive at the time that remember 1812. You know, there's small wounds there. I think this would be a fantastic movie. Yeah, I mean, I vaguely heard it and said not something I know, you know, too much about. But, you know, Britain probably didn't really care much about the Confederacy, though I think they were more linked in that the Confederates saw themselves as sort of the aristocracy of the South. You know, you had the big plantation and you had like the Jefferson family, like the sort of old families. But also they just wanted to sort of poke America in the eye. It's like, you know, in Revolutionary War, you know, France just helped America because they wanted to annoy the British. It was just sort of that tit for tat. So and I think realistically the Britons probably could have invaded and that would have really been bad for Lincoln. War on two fronts. Are you sending them to the south or are you sending them to the border? So yeah, it's another one. I mean American Civil War, I think, is one that tends is quite an overused one, mainly because, you know, it was such an influential event. I mean you have some great series and films like you have Glory, which is a really great film if you've not seen it, Lincoln. But yeah, I think it'd be nice to focus on something that isn't, you know, Gettysburg or Bull Run or Appomattox or Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I think it's nice when you have these event, smaller events, like you know, like if you're doing a World War One film, maybe something that's not focusing on the Somme, for example. It's nice to get those little bits and pieces that you don't necessarily know about. So I think that's an important one for sure. 
And also, you know, we would have kicked your asses. Everybody knows that. I mean, you, you keep trying and we keep, you know, winning, but whatever, you know, helps you sleep at night. You guys have Joe Biden as a president. I feel like we've won on that front. You can't even get a carrier out of your own territorial waters. I don't want to, you know, point fingers or nothing. But <laughs> Sarah Stuck, our good friend from the UK. The other the thing about this that gets really interesting is um, to bring it to a modern lesson, though, is it really was a financial thing when they got down to it. Neither one of them really wanted to fight because there was so much British money that was tied up in America. They needed the grain or corn in the, in the British parlance of the time because France was going through a famine. They couldn't get grain and, and foodstuffs from the continent. They needed America's supply lines. When you go back and look, this is actually one of the turning points into what we now call a special relationship because it was the business ties. Everybody was making money. It was good for both countries to keep that alliance going. They signed that treaty. They get the slave question off the table, which which was icky for the British at the time. And America hadn't fully dealt with through our own shame. But we did eventually. This is the this is what blossoms into the special relationship from the cantankerous relationship we had had before. It came out of a fight. But like, you know, like all families and cousins and friends, sometimes sometimes you fight and sometimes you wind up with a stronger relationship afterwards. Yeah. Except we're the better cousin. You you've got the better sounding accent. I'll give you that much. You're such That's a monarchist. <laughs> yes, I'm a proud British monarchist. You. Hey, May sixth. Look, you, you're getting your day May sixth. Until then, settle down. You can do. They got the coronation set for May the sixth. You can have your day then. Until then, settle down a little bit. Well, yeah, because you never have anything fun. Your inaugurations of every four years. How boring. How. Mm. Yeah, we, we managed we we've managed to do it without anybody getting killed for the most part. So I mean, there is something to our method. That's very true. But you also had eight presidents die in office, so and four assassinated. Whereas only we've only had one assassinated prime minister. We've only had one have to resign. How you doing on that? Yeah, that's that's fair <laughs> enough. But I think resignation is probably better than getting shot and dying for six months because the doctors poked a bullet wound with their bare hands. To be fair, if we had some people of integrity, there would have been very many more presidents have resigned in office than what did if they had a lick of integrity, but they didn't. Speaking of death, uh, your last one on your list, Sarah Stuck joining us. Queen consorts who aren't Henry VIII's wives. I just love the title because we already touched on it. We focus so much on the Tudors and so much on Henry VIII. You already mentioned Matilda of Flanders, but and Matilda of Boulogne, and there's boy, there's a lot of Matildas in here. Yeah. I love the title, though, because there's so many of these women who are just fascinating in and of themselves. And they just since they didn't get top billing and they didn't get reigns, you know, they haven't got their prestige series or movie. And they also yet. didn't get beheaded. But so. they also didn't get beheaded. Can we get a movie out of some of these? Because you list some of some of these are really Queen Charlotte, I think, is a really fascinating one. You can tell that story. Uh, but some of these just run down the list. These are really fascinating women with really interesting interconnections in history. So, you know, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who's also a um, very dis great, distant great-grandmother, which is cool because I admire her. She was, I mean, she was a bit brutal, but hey-ho, we like strong women. Um, she and Isabella of France both separately overthrew their husbands because they were tired of their shenanigans. Eleanor was tired because her husband was cheating on her. Isabella of France was tired because her husband was cheating on her with men, which was a huge affront, especially at their wedding day. He's paid attention to her, his male favourite, not his wife. I mean homosexuality back then uber uber scandalous so they both exactly overthrew their husbands and they both got in prison for it but ended up living quite normal lives after so you've got to admire that somewhat 
especially since their husbands were actually the rightful kings. I mean, they did have sons to push forward, but you know, you got to respect that. Fair enough. Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, had a lot of children, managed to live through it. 13 of the 16, 15 lived. If anybody watches Bridgerton, like me, you will know Prince Queen Charlotte. And it was one of the few happy marriages because he actually never cheated on her, unlike his father and grandfather, who were notorious for their mistresses. And, you know, his very misunderstood figure, obviously, you know, you guys hate George III, you think Hamilton, you think, oh, the mean guy that, you know, stamped duty. But he was actually a very good monarch, very beloved in the UK, very anti-slavery, who was, you know, a good husband, enjoyed life with his family and was the third longest reigning British monarch. Well, I mean, to be fair, you know, he didn't treat us that way. So we have a little different that perspective. That was Parliament. That's why we did an absolute monarchy. Keep those pesky parliamentarians in line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blame the Parliament. That's what you do. You know, I'm sure it's all Parliament's fault. I didn't we see Parliament. Congress, so I feel like it's equal shares into rally. Hey, it wasn't Parliament's signature on them on them letters. I'm just saying. <laughs> Sarah Stuck, our good friend from the UK. All right, my last one. Again, now this one, there's a Western bias here because this has been dealt with in uh, Bollywood and other overseas films before. I find this period, the the Mughal Maritan Wars um, in India, I find that period of history so fascinating. People don't understand Arazabad, and I'm probably saying his name wrong. This is 1658 to 1707. He's, he's, he's the peak of the Mughal Empire. This is the biggest economy on earth. Like this is six, 1650 to 1707. You know, Europe's at constantly at war with each other, but you know, you've got France, you've got England, you've got, you know, Austria, Hungary, you've got major empires in the West. This is the biggest economy in the world at the time. This, it's an amazing chunk of history. Very few people. This guy actually wrote a copy of the Quran, which is, you know, would be kind of analogous to our King James Bible. It was the version for a long, long time. Very introspective, has very interesting writing. Of course, uh, the folks in India remember him as being a brutal dictator. Islamists remember him as a hero. There's a ton of history to this because he was the peak and then it started declining. And then we get to modern India before the colonial times. I find this piece of history fantastic. It's not discussed a lot in Western things, but man, you can make a great movie out of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we are, we made it is very Western centric. It is understandable because of, you know, the Anglosphere and that, you know, you want stories people know, which is why, you know, like historical programs about the Civil War and World War II are more palatable because it's more well known. Whereas if it's about, you know, the Mughal Empire or if it was about, you know, uh, Japanese shogunate in China you don't really know much about it I mean I profess to not know too much about India we did do about um, the rebellion of 1857 and how that led to stronger powers for Britain where I did a um, history course at university but yeah I agree it's very fascinating obviously Britain has a lot of cultural ties to India obviously rather we hadn't invaded and colonised them as most of the world didn't but at the end of the day we still have a very strong relationship with them you know, we have a lot of um, prominent Indian people in politics, uh, Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel. And so I think I'm not sure what sort of the Indian population is like in America. I know it's high, but I think it would be nice. And, and I mean, there's a billion people in India. They deserve some story. 
Yeah, and sometime they think the first year India is going to surpass China as the most populous country in the world. And of course, India, for all its problems, is a democracy, is modernizing, although they're a little slower than some of us would like, and they still have their issues. You know, when you start talking about countering China on the world stage, you know, India is a lot more of a friend than the current dictatorship in Beijing is. And I I think a good movie of historical stuff wouldn't be hurtful. Um, this is obviously controversial uh, figures like this, but that whole period, there's other figures from that. You know, this went on for hundreds of years, this conflict. I think you can make great movies out of this. And I think it would make um, fascinating because it, it did form India, especially. The the big beef with this guy, um, Aurangzeb, was he demolished a lot of the Hindu temples. Yeah. So he's considered, you know, war criminal. You know, he gets that stuff thrown at him, not unfairly. But because that's the peak of his empire and then everything after that's the Marathas rising up against him. That's kind of the tipping point. I think that would be a good place to dive into this for some movies. And there's no perfect historical figure. You know, Abraham Lincoln was still an extremely racist person. Washington, Jefferson, etc. Own slaves. You know, we very great people have done horrible things, and very bad people have done great things. You know, Stalin was a you know horrendous human being, but the Red Army it killed so many people trying to stop Nazi Germany. So you know, you've got to balance these things. So while um, the Mughal Emperor was not a good person, you can't sort of ignore what he did on the world stage. So yeah. you can say he was horrible, but at the end of the day, Hitler was voted Times Person of the Year, not because they agreed with him, but because he was so influential. Yeah, and it's a perspective thing because, like I mentioned, you know, you talk about the 1650 to 1700, that's dominated in our shared histories with, you know, England and France constantly at war, right? That's kind of the world history we're taught. This is the biggest this is the biggest empire and the biggest economy in the world going at the same time and we hardly ever talk about it. It's a perspective problem where sometimes we don't, you know, see out from our own noses a little bit. That's why we talk to you, Sarah Stuck, our good friend in the UK. This has been a blast. This has been so much fun than doing politicians. Yes, we're going to be talking to you here in May when you King King Charles the Third will officially be you say coronated? How do you how do you crowned? Go for crowned. Crowned, coronated. Almost another C word that doesn't apply there, but he he will get his he's his long awaited day, May the sixth. We'll have to bring you back for that. You do so many of these great ones. We always enjoy having you. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you and what you got coming next, because I love these lists of things you do. For election daily, I'm continuing with my piece on uh presidential runners up. So people who ran for president came second didn't win. So not including people who lost re-election like Jimmy Carter, you know, people like Aaron Burr. And then for the Mallard. I'm going to be starting one on um, British and English consorts because fascinating group of mainly women but also men and it's nice to sometimes explore people who aren't Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn because I think we all know the story of Anne Boleyn probably backwards, especially in Britain. Yeah, we were joking about uh, King Charles III. It's like he's already the best King Charles <laughs> just by default because he didn't die young and he's not going to get beheaded. Well, so. the same regnal name and all the so many Anne's and Catherine's. Yeah, and he, did, he didn't die young and he's not going to get beheaded. So it's a low bar, but he cleared it. So he yeah. is the greatest King Charles you've ever had. Congratulations, Congratulations. <laughs> Sarah Stuck. We love having you. You're fantastic, ma'am. These are always a blast. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, appreciate your time today. Thank you. 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.